Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So I've said it before, I'm more than happy to say it again. The governor's race in Indiana is wicked boring. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Suzanne Crouch, Eric Doden, Senator Mike Braun, boring. All three of them. The campaigns, boring. The interest of Hoosiers, non-existent. It's not. It's non-existent. I was almost going to say not in existence and non-existent, and that became non-existence. And I don't know if that's a new word or not. I I think I should just stick with, you know, words. Not existent. Non-existent. Now I'm all confused. It ain't there, folks. No one cares about this race. No one's engaged in this race. No one. And I got to tell you, if you're Braun or Doden or, or, or Crouch and you're okay with this, that's weird. That is super weird. Now, you could say to me, Tony, they got time. It's a governor's race. You got a couple of years. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, lose your head. They have time to build it out. They also have time to get somebody else into the race. It seems to me that what we are seeing is an opportunity for somebody else to get involved in this contest. Is that what Braun wants? Now, Braun's going to say, I've got the money. I'm a senator. I'm going to go to work here. I know how to push these people away, but Doden has money and Crouch can fundraise. I don't think she'll have the money that that uh, the Braun has. But Crouch does know how to fundraise. Do you remember when Crouch was able to give Eric Holcomb a million dollars for his reelection campaign? And then to say thank you, he chose this past week not to endorse Suzanne Crouch as the next governor of Indiana. That's, that is exactly the kind of precious that we need here in the state of Indiana. A governor who looks at his lieutenant governor who's been with them for seven years who gave him a million dollars and say, maybe. That's, that's really doing wonders for Crouch. And I, I'm, I will tell you right now, the people who are like, oh, that's good because the last thing in the world she wants is his endorsement. I, I'm sorry. I don't, this, is, this, is a take, this is a sophomoric take in my view. Sophomoric take that you don't want the endorsement of the sitting governor. I think there's plenty of arguments to be made about the failures of Eric Holcomb. I think that they're very, very real. And I think on, on, on the COVID conversation, on, on levels of taxation, uh, the property tax, oh, I'm going to get into property tax because Texas is trying to eliminate property taxes. And it's a fight between the governor and the lieutenant governor there, Dan Patrick, and others. Uh, Chuck DeVore is going to join us from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. It's, it's fascinating. I would love to have this fight in Indiana because I want to get rid of all property taxes. So there are things that you could say about Holcomb that are very true. And then you'll take a look at all the business that was brought in to the state of Indiana. And people have always dogged on Holcomb for taking these international trips. There are plenty of things to be bothered by Eric Holcomb about. And uh, on, on a personal level, uh, the way I was treated by Governor Holcomb, not cool. Not cool. 
Um, I would tell the story, but in my view, the story happened off the record, and I try to honor those things, uh, because if you don't have that, what do you have? But holy cow, I get an opportunity to get one-on-one with Governor Holcomb. It isn't going to be the kindest thing in the world. I mean, real, I'll leave it there. That said, the trips taken to bring business are smart trips. They matter. They're valuable. I, I, I always thought so. I continue to think so. And there are plenty of people in the state who are still happy with what it is he's done. You would want his endorsement. That he didn't give it is madness in my view. Mad, to me, it's an unforgivable. It is an unforgivable. And it's not like, oh, they've got an agreement. It'll come later. Oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that for a second. I have no insight, no interior knowledge whatsoever. I don't believe it for a hot damn second. And you know what? I don't think you do either. I don't think you do either. No way. No way. And I think all of this speaks to a large swath of people who say, wonder who else can get into this race. And so people who say, I wonder if I can get into this race. All of this quiet, all of this silence, all of this boring leads to opportunity. So um, it's boring right now. And it is a super boring race with super boring candidates. I don't know if it stays that way. Now, part of me may be hoping it doesn't stay that way. But I'm saying, I don't think it stays that way. I think it's about to get interesting and fascinating, or at least I can hope. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz Today. Texas, for many people, is a place of heroes. Texas handles the border properly. Texas handles taxes properly. Texas handles brisket properly. It does. It actually does handle brisket very, very well. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Well, on this taxes conversation, there is now a push from Governor Greg Abbott to end property taxes, a special session being called because Governor Abbott wants to reduce and then eliminate property taxes. So there's questions. When, when you eliminate property taxes, something I have long favored, you get into a whole host of questions of what do you do next because of how we have developed systems that deal with property taxes. So what is Texas's plan? Where does this originate from? And what's going to happen? Chuck DeVore joins us right now. The Honorable Chuck DeVore, former California Assemblyman, one of the first people I ever met who said, yeah, California doesn't have a future, and went to Texas. He is now the Chief National Initiatives Officer for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And, and let's take a, a step back on this. Uh, where does this desire to end property taxes come from, and how has it been uh, germinating and developing in Texas throughout the years? Yeah, great to be with you again, Tony. So it comes from a place uh, due to the fact that in Texas we're a bit more decentralized than other state governments, certainly more so than California. And local governments have a lot of power to raise revenue through property taxes. That's the prime mechanism that local government, including school districts, uh, raise tax money uh, with uh, the sales tax a distant second for non-school district uh, local uh, political jurisdictions. 
And so what's been happening is, unlike in about 45 other states, we don't have appraisal caps in Texas. And so you have these appraisal districts, and they come in, and, and they say, you know, congratulations, your home is worth 10% more this year. Uh, and what you quickly find out is that your property taxes can go up pretty fast in Texas. Uh, so we don't have a, an income tax. That's great. Uh, our sales taxes are kind of medium high compared to other states. Uh, but the property taxes have been going up quite a bit in recent years. We have the same issue in uh, my beloved Indiana. This has been a serious conversation. And certainly uh, here, the Republican Party has not actually stepped up to do something about it. Is the property tax issue in Texas a left-right conversation? Is it a conservative-progressive conversation? Or, or what are the sides that are being discussed here? Yeah, so everyone seems to have a dog in this fight. I mean, you even find a lot of Texas Democrats who will come out and say, look, the property taxes are too high. Now, of course, they would like to have an income tax to replace it, uh, which uh, we recently had a, an amendment to our state constitution uh, essentially outlawing an income tax for all time, at least until the constitution gets amended again, perhaps. Uh, so that's really not an option. Uh, but yes, even Democrats are in on this. And so what you find is you, have, you find these different camps, right? You, you find right now, uh, I would say that there are three broad camps uh, with a dog in this fight. The, the first, of course, being the state Senate led by a very powerful lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick. We have an unusual system in Texas where our lieutenant governor is more powerful than any other lieutenant governor in the country. Uh, what they want to do is they want to focus the tax release on, relief on homeowners. And so in Texas, approximately uh, 64% of homes are owner-occupied. Uh, if you go to the Senate's plan, uh, they would see tax relief of about $1,400 per year for the average Texas homeowner. Uh, the challenge with that, though, is the mechanism they're using, it would be kind of a temporary thing. So as time goes on and inflation and housing prices go up, you'd start to see that savings get eroded. So that's that's the first plan. The second plan from the House of Representatives would spread the property tax relief more evenly between businesses, small business owners, uh, apartment owners, which of course would trickle into renters, as well as homeowners. And because it's more broad-based, individual homeowners would only see about $750 a year in tax reductions. Now, the House also has talked about an appraisal cap of about 5%, meaning that as your home goes up in value, that the local appraisal districts can't have it go up, or any property, really, even industrial property, by more than 5% per year. In California, by the way, it's 2% per year under Prop 13 passed in 1978. Now, the governor, Governor Abbott, what he wants is he wants as much property tax relief as possible, but he wants it focused on the largest increment of people's property taxes, which is called the school tax M&O for maintenance and operation. That's the biggest portion of property taxes that anyone pays, the plurality, right? 35, 40% in most cases. And so what he wants to do is put the M&O on a path for elimination. Now, the problem is, we can't seem to get an agreement between our big three, between the Speaker of the House, between the governor, between the lieutenant governor. About all they can agree on is 
let's have as much property tax relief as possible. Haven't been able to agree on the details. Talking to uh, Chuck DeVore from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, texaspolicy.com. He is the chief national initiatives officer there. The property tax conversation is always uh, an impassioned one because, well, this is how we pay for schools. Without property taxes, how will we pay for schools? Is this the argument that's leading to this debate amongst the big three? I mean, I know the Lieutenant Governor, Patrick, uh, who uh, he owns radio stations and, and other things, so that's how I knew who he was before this. Um, he wants to engage in Lincoln-Douglas-style debates with Governor Abbott on the subject. Like, he wants to make this a big, bold conversation. Is this about school funding, or is it about something else? Well, it is partially about school funding, and, and the challenge is this, is that as time has gone on in Texas, there have been uh, various lawsuits uh, with the state Supreme Court having uh, ruled that the original property tax system to fund schools was unconstitutional. It, it led to an unequal result because, of course, you'd have school districts that had very poor property tax values that often had children that were more difficult uh, more of a challenge to educate, you know, more immigrants, more minorities. Uh, and they had fewer resources because the property tax values were were lower. And then you'd have other districts where you'd have a bunch of uh, uh, professionals that would live. Uh, the property taxes would be very high and the children would be high achieving. And so what uh, Texas has done over time is develop something called Robin Hood, which nobody likes. And what Robin Hood does is it requires high property tax, high wealth districts to pair up with uh, low wealth districts and essentially share the wealth. And so what happens then, Tony, is when these high wealth districts raise additional property taxes to pay for school, what you'll see is they only get to keep pennies on the dollar and all the rest flows out of the district and goes to these poor districts to help uh, improve funding per capita funding for these poor districts. And so what Governor Abbott is proposing to do is to replace that system with a state-funded system. So in other words, let's stop the charade of forcing school districts to share the wealth and instead take over that responsibility with state funding. Now, there's another side effect with this, which is that we're having a conversation over school choice. And it's a lot easier to implement school choice if the state government is providing a significant degree of funding for the schools, more so than today. And I, and I look, I'm a, you know I'm a, a school choice guy, and I believe that money should follow the student, money should fund students and, and not systems uh, on, on every level. I assume this is where you get your biggest pushback, not from somebody like the lieutenant governor, but from the political left, because the last thing they want to do is end the system that supports the unions, that supports them politically. Right, right. So you have a lot of scaremongering going on right now that within the context of these discussions that what Republicans are trying to do is to defund public education. Now, of course, this is taking place in the context of significant declines in student performance arising out of the teachers' union's desire not to uh, do any sort of in-classroom instruction during COVID-19 and, frankly, uh, considerably long after when it was pretty clear that there was... uh, little to no threat. 
talking to Chuck DeVore, Chief National Initiatives Officer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, These conversations are more and more happening, and certainly with the massive levels of property tax increase we've seen in Indiana, which it seems that the General Assembly here knew about and didn't do anything about. This is a place with a Republican supermajority, and yet nothing took place and no relief has been brought yet. These ideas are very, very interesting ones, but as they will tell you, well, the money's got to get replaced somehow. So I'm asking you to go back over that. Make sure that we understand the state of Texas is not saying we're going to do without the money. This is a discussion of where the money comes from. Am I seeing that right? You you are, Tony. And so uh, Texas has been blessed with you know, fairly conservative fiscal management. We wish it certainly was more conservative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. But as a result, the state of Texas has about a $14 billion surplus. Now, interestingly enough, uh, California had somewhere around $100 billion last year. Now they're staring at a $30 billion deficit. Uh, so we have a surplus. And that's because the state is growing. A lot of people are moving to Texas. I think we're we're now number two after Ron DeSantis is Florida, uh, after years of being number one. But, you know, hey, number two ain't so bad either. And so you got a lot of businesses and a lot of people moving here, and it's generating a lot of new tax revenue. And so the legislature properly sees that as, oh, we're over-collecting taxes. Let's get some of that back. Let's let the people keep their own money. What will happen next? In, in the end result... Where where does this go? Because I always argue that the property tax conversation is a conversation about actual ownership. How do you actually own the property that you own if the state can take it from you because you didn't give them their share as they deemed it at any given moment? Where do we think this ends? What is the is is it a compromise point? Is it a okay, we'll take this much right now, we'll come back at this in two years? Where where is this going to go? Well, so the Governor Abbott has the ability to essentially call as many special sessions as he wishes, right? So in Texas, we only pay our lawmakers $600 a month, whether they deserve it or not. Uh, they, you get to meet 140 days every other year. But what's happening is the governor is going to say, no, you know, I'm going to keep calling you back into special session until we get the sort of property tax uh, relief that we want. And so it's just going to, I think, going to be a contest of wills you know, who gets worn down? At what point do they just decide, oh, heck, let's just compromise and let's just, uh, you know, get out of here and pass something the governor will sign? So I, I think that we're in a good place and that the conversation is the right conversation to have. I love listening about, you know, do we increase the homestead exemption? Do we use appraisal caps? Uh, do we buy down the M&O tax in a process called compression uh, which is, of course, very tax-geeky sort of thing, and, and people quickly, their eyes glaze over. But those are the three basic ways that you can return money back to the taxpayer. And so everyone's talking about it, and that's great. Let's talk about it, and then let's get it done. I think that's the the really rare part of this, is that uh, aside from maybe some very staunch progressives, Everybody accepts that something is going to happen in a reduction. It's just a question of what, and that's rare air 
uh, to be in. Uh, Chuck DeVore, Chief National Initiatives Officer at the Texas Public Policy uh, Foundation. You can find him on Twitter at Chuck DeVore, D-E-V-O-R-E, TexasPolicy.com. Sir, I always appreciate you. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. So it is a big part of that spending, COVID. Do you have regrets about how you handled that? Because some of your opponents are now running these loops of where you say you shut down the country. We had to artificially close our country. We did just the right thing. We closed it down. We understood the disease. We closed the country down. We studied it. We learned about it. Some people wish we never closed it down. We did the right thing. Everything we did was right. And do you have regrets about doing that? I gave the governors the options. For instance, uh, Henry McMaster of South Carolina. Governor. Great guy. Great governor. He didn't shut it down. Tennessee didn't shut it down. South Dakota didn't shut it down. Georgia shut it down for a little while, but not much. They did a good job. Six states that didn't shut down. I gave it's the federalist system. I told all governors, you do what you want. You can shut it down or not. Florida, by the way, he shut it down tight. No highways, no beaches, no this. But then pushed then he back pretty up. hard. He opened up. But is it fair to criticize him on that? Is it fair to criticize anybody on anything? You can ask that question all the time, Brett Baer. Trump's going to take the hits on lockdown. Remember, Trump is strong. He's not infallible. No matter what his supporters say. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. 833-468-8669-833. Tony, I came across this. It was was that interview with Brett Baer that was then followed up by this piece over at National Review about polling. Again, it's polling. I never, ever take it as, as as gospel. I've been burned too many times. I'm not a buyer. And even with the polling in this last election that was far more accurate than people gave it credit for, still does nothing to convince me that when a poll comes out, I should immediately jump and respond to it. CNN putting out a poll, as reported by National Review, and already that's got people saying, oh, Tony, follow me here, because I'm going to be with you on this in a second. Stay tuned. It gets fascinating from here. The polling shows that Trump has slipped from 53% support in May to 47% today. The favorability has gone from 77 to 67%. So what am I supposed to take from this? And I'll tell you what I'm supposed to take from this. Nothing. Nothing. There have been polls that showed that Trump has gone up post-indictment. It's a poll. I'm not going to live and die by it. Neither are you. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it means so very much. That said, can we be perfectly clear that Trump does have vulnerabilities. And one of those vulnerabilities is the lockdown. The indictment creates vulnerabilities regardless of what we think of the indictments. So we're clear on that. But his actions and activities as president create vulnerabilities. Lockdowns are one of them. He can get hit on lockdowns. And his hit on DeSantis, I got to admit, 
it's the laziest of the hits. It, it rings hollow. If if DeSantis locked down, then DeSantis opened up, you can hit on him for locking down. But you then can't fail to recognize that he opened up, opened up huge, and Florida became the talking point for openness. You can't change the fact that people from New York and California went on vacation to Florida to be able to live like normal human beings. It can't be denied. I don't even know why you would try. So, of course, Trump can get hit for those things. And Trump can try and defend, but just like he did right there, the defense is, is, is weak. It, it really is. And look what DeSantis did. That's, that's, that's a weak defense. This is about what you did as president. Why didn't you fire Fauci? Why didn't you fire Burks? Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Why didn't you? You were the guy in charge. Why didn't you? It's like the whole thing with the boxes. I, I had stuff in the boxes, and they came and took my boxes. I had golf shirts, this and that. You didn't have time to get golf shirts out of boxes? I am not arguing that the raid was proper. I'm not arguing that the indictment was proper. I still argue that the act of taking the documents is the declassifying of the documents. I don't like the fact that you had them. I don't like the fact that they weren't secure. I think that stuff is messed up. I would say it to him nose to nose. I don't care if he likes me. That's how you, sometimes a conversation requires direct talk. You were wrong to take the stuff. You were wrong to have the stuff. Just wrong. The fact that you could do it doesn't mean that you should do it. It's like with with the conversation about speech. The fact that you can say something doesn't mean that you should say something. It doesn't mean that there won't be ramifications for if you say something. That is different than telling people they can't say something or that they must say something. The only thing I could imagine that's worse than telling people they can't say X, Y, or Z is telling them that they must say A, B, or C. The idea of compelled speech is absolutely despicable, which is why, for example, I won't be told what pronoun to use because that's compelled speech. You're telling me I have to say it. Nah, Nah, I'd rather fight. I'd rather you went to hell in a handbasket. You can't compel people to speech. You cannot compel people to statements. Societally, oh, we don't say this, we don't say that. Look, everything you want to discuss around the N-word is totally accurate. I cannot say the word because I would lose my job. But I wouldn't say the word because I understand its historical context. Yet there are multiple people out there who say the word claiming that they've retaken the word and that the word belongs to people who look like this and not like that. Dude, go live your life. It's weird. You know it's weird. Dave Chappelle tells this this great joke, and I don't want to to do the joke, but it's it's how when he was at uh, the Daily, not, not the Daily Show, when he's doing Chappelle's show there on Comedy Central, and they told him you can't say this because you're not that and he says well what about the n-word i'm not that either but i'm allowed to say this and his point was i am not this thing this this despicable derogatory term but yet i say it all the time you got no problem with that i think the joke actually turns itself around i don't think it's pointing out the hypocrisy of others i think it's pointing out his 
He is not this thing, but he calls everybody this thing, which he says he is not, but because he has a certain color skin, he's allowed to say a thing. Uh, you, you, you figure it out. You do that mathematics. I would assume Chappelle would be like, yep, messed up. And then uh, he would call you a name and keep doing jokes. Because that's the way I would do it. I'd be like, yep, way it is. Boom. But I think every time he does it, he kind of is is reinforcing the peculiarity of of that of that scene and of that of that moment. But the idea that someone could say to me, "You're not allowed to say," no, I could, but I, there are ramifications in today's society, and you can argue that that's messed up and worthy of discussion. But the idea that I would be compelled, I have to say X, Y, or Z, that's just nuts. That's worthy of fighting every day of the week and twice on Sunday. One has to address issues as they are. It's not that Trump couldn't take the documents. It's that Trump shouldn't have taken the documents. They weren't in a safe place. It was wrong to do. It was wrong for Biden to do. I think that's just the way we have to address it. Honestly, completely, and and thusly. When we address lockdowns, you pushed lockdowns. You favored lockdowns. Now you want to say, look what DeSantis did? DeSantis has a better story to tell on lockdowns and learning from it than you, Mr. President. He just does. Do I think this is a subject that ends him? Of course not. Of course not. Which is why I don't believe the polls. You see how we bring it all back? He goes down in a poll, and, and what's supposed to happen? Oh, it's over? What? What kind of craziness are we talking about here? Are you not, are you certifiably nuts? Over? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! And let me tell you, Senator Blutarski knows what he's talking about. What madness. To think that, up oh, that's the end of Trump. Yeah, it's going down. Oh, the, the indictment, look what it's doing. No, it's not. No, it's not. There's just no way to know just yet. And the people who are saying you're ridiculous if you think this means that Trump is done, they're correct. But if they're the same people saying you're ridiculous if you think Trump favored lockdowns, well, no, he did. And... That was an example of it that Fox played, and there's going to be more examples of it. And Trump not being tough enough on Fauci, and Trump not not being tough enough on Burks, that's all going to fall on him. And he's going to try and deflect, but he can't. He will find a way to move things, maneuver things, do all those kinds of things, but people like DeSantis and Christie, Pence, and I don't even know how Pence is going to do this, actually. How does Pence do it? They're going to be focused like lasers on this subject and others. The idea that Trump has no weakness is is foolhardy. The idea that Trump is weak is equally as foolhardy. That's why I bring it up. And when I engage these conversations, I get accused of trying to have my cake and eat it too. I am in no way trying to do that. I have stated very, very clearly, Trump ain't my guy. I'm not mad at the dude. I think he's made some really bad mistakes. I can point to a lot of politicians who made some really bad mistakes. 
If he's the candidate, I will take him over Joe Biden every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I don't know how to get more clear than that. He wasn't my guy in 2016. You know what I found? Those four years were pretty good for the country. Policy-wise, because he followed a lot of conservatives and conservative principles, worked out pretty well for the country. He's not a conservative. He's a populist. There's a big difference in the things. 2024, 2020, I voted for the dude. Didn't win. The stealing, the this, the that, the other, he didn't win. He made his life more difficult than he needed to. And then in the aftermath, he cost Republicans the Senate. Now, you could say to me, that's not true. And I'll say to you, that is true. And we may never know. What if he had said nothing? All I know is we didn't win Georgia. That's all I know. It's all I know. Factual details. We didn't win Georgia. We didn't keep control of the Senate. And we didn't get control of the Senate in 2022. Don't know how much I blame that on Trump. But it's going to be a conversation, certainly had by the DeSantis and other crowd. And something that Trump can get hit on. The fact that the Trump acolyte doesn't buy in is inconsequential to whether or not America buys in. But the idea that Trump is now weak and is, and is on the way out is it's just not there. It's just not there. And what are, it would be a ridiculous thing to think. Dude's formidable as can be. But just as that is true, it is equally as true uh, that he could take hits. And, and, and just like I, I say to you, that Trump's not my guy in 2024. If he's the candidate, I'm voting for him. I won't have an option. He's the candidate. Biden's the candidate. What do you want me to do? And let me take it a step further. If Trump is the candidate and somehow Gavin Newsom, everybody's still talking about Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, as being a Democratic candidate. I don't know what they're talking about. If, if he's the candidate, I'd still vote for Trump. Trump this, Trump that, Trump the other. Let's call it all true just for the sake of the conversation. Policy-wise, I'm better off. My kids are better off. Your kids are better off. I can prove this. Just give me a pen and a piece of paper. Watch me go to work. So I deal with my realities. Some people deal with their fantasies. Some people believe that anything you say is, of course, false, of course, untrue. Their guy is the greatest. You know what? They're just people. And they're not the greatest. They've got failings and they've got faults. And some of them suck. But I take a look at their suckage and I weigh it against somebody else's suckage. And I ask myself, which guy sucks less? And most importantly, which guy's suckage is going to somehow mean less issues for me? Well, that guy's suckage means more issues for me. I'm not voting for that guy or that woman because, you know, I don't want to be sexist. That's how rational people think. It's all I'm interested in. So if someone wants to tell me that I'm a never-Trumper, I don't give a damn. And if someone wants to tell me uh, that I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an ever-Trumper, I think that's what they're calling them now, ever-Trumpers, I don't give a damn. I am interested in what is best for the nation. And I deal with my realities. In my desires, in my fantasies, we would have uh, better things to discuss and better things to vote for all around. But that's about fantasy. I understand that you go to war with the army you have, not with the army you wish you had. So, we'll see. 
But this a point made by Brett Baer in the Fox News interview, this is a place where Trump's vulnerable. That's just can't be denied. He did favor lockdowns. I left it to the governors. Sure. He favored lockdowns and didn't get rid of the people who also favored the lockdowns. Just facts. I'm Tony Katz. I'd like to discuss one more false inclusion about your report that's made its way into the MAGA Republican talking points. Some of my colleagues across the aisle have started calling this the, quote, Russia hoax. It's the theory that Russia did not actually interfere in the 2016 presidential election. That is patently false. That's Representative Gerald Nadler saying to John Durham that your report is garbage. He's a, he's a special kind of guy. There is a hoax at play which is the idea that Trump was involved with Russia in trying to manipulate the election. That's the hoax. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. The special counsel, John Durham, in his own words. Our findings were sobering. I tell you, having spent 40 years plus as a federal prosecutor, they were particularly sobering to me. A number of my colleagues who have spent decades in the FBI themselves, they were sobering. While I'm encouraged by some of the reforms that have been implemented by the FBI, the problems identified in this report, anybody who actually reads the report and the details of the report, the documented portions of the report, I think would uh, would find that um, the problems identified in the report are not susceptible to overnight fixes. That much is true. The progressive left wants to pretend like this whole thing didn't matter and John Durham's the problem. No. The FBI, the DOJ, the politicization of these of these institutions, that's the problem. And you only fix it by actually draining the swamp. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.